Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. And so, hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. For this episode, I am joined by the founder and CEO of Another Tomorrow, Vanessa Barboni Halleck. Vanessa, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Another Tomorrow is an end to end sustainable luxury women's wear brand, um, which you founded and launched right before the pandemic. Uh, and we'll get into that and the challenges that that has presented. But what led you to to launch in the first place? Well, it was really it was an accident. You know, my career was uh, was in finance with a focus on emerging markets. And I got to a point where I really wanted the next and the way I thought about it was my next 20 years to really be about purpose. And a lot of that has to do with how I grew up. But I had actually taken a sabbatical to move into sustainable finance. That's where I thought I was going to be putting my energy. That was the best way to kind of manifest that. And I was doing just really deep dive industry research on a bunch of different industries in terms of all of the negative externalities they were creating. And it was when I came across apparel that I was, I was just floored by the impact of fashion. And, you know, frankly, surprised that it had just kind of been off my radar screen. You know, I've been somebody with, you know, solar panels and electric car, vegetarian diet. And yet, um, aside from kind of avoiding fast fashion, I really had not had a strong appreciation for how impactful the industry was. And, you know, I was on the sabbatical, had some time on my hands. And the first thing I did was just try and change my own personal habits. And wow, did I find that difficult. And I mean, just the amount of research to buy a t-shirt that I could feel good about with my newfound knowledge was, was just so, so painful. And it became clear to me that there was an important consumer solution that was going to be necessary as people kind of came up that awareness curve. But I also saw how instrumental other challenger brands had been in other consumer verticals, like food, like beauty. Um, and it wasn't about their individual supply chains. It was about norm shifting and demonstrating what was possible. And so I thought that that was just incredibly compelling. And in terms of our market positioning, you know, that was really a function of, you know, sort of A, what I know, but also B, what I was hearing from other uh, women in particular, which was that they understood sustainability in this industry through the lens of fewer better things. And they were really frustrated trying to access, you know, really exceptional quality, luxury quality product at the price point that it's you know, traditionally been av available. And so um, we thought that we could create that new nexus between exquisite quality and price, utilizing a direct-to-consumer business model and owned resale. Got it. Got it. Well, um, before I ask how it's going, because you've obviously <laughs> dealt with a lot of shifts, um, let's, for the listeners who may not be aware or as aware as they should be, um, let's talk about apparel production and, and yeah. what you discovered. Um, uh, it's, it's pretty well documented, but less known. So what, yeah. what are some maybe shocking facts that you can reveal for us that, uh, that might um, shake people awake? 
Yeah, you know, I think part of it was just how much of the impact actually comes from the raw material level, right? So we don't think about fashion as an agricultural product, let's say, you know, but if you think about two of the most ubiquitous materials, you know, those being, let's say, polyester, which is responsible for not the majority, but a sizable minority of microfibers in our waterways, um, cotton, which has a very disproportionate impact in terms of chemical insecticide and pesticides use relative to um, how much cropland it actually takes up. It's like two and a half percent of global cropland, but between chemical insecticide and pesticide use, in some cases, it's upward of 20 percent um, with huge impacts on, uh, on biodiversity um, and actually even on, on human health. So you know, really that raw material impact was fascinating to me and tells you you've really got to get all the way back to the bottom of the supply chain um, and really start to re-engineer how we think about fiber. So that was one. Um, the other, which I think still is not talked about enough today, is the wage issue, right? So it's, it's all super exciting to talk about new and innovative materials because it's like sexy and fun and all of that. But, you know, stats are hard to come by in a super coherent way, but it's thought that, you know, less than 10% of global garment workers earn a living wage. And that's pretty staggering when you think about how many people are involved in, uh, in supply chains. And then really the animal welfare piece of it also shocked me. Um, you know, when you think about animal welfare, it's easy to combine that to sort of exotics and furs and things of that nature. But um, there are some pretty deep impacts on animals um, in agricultural and non-agricultural settings as well. So I'm always careful about that. People want to hear about that to varying degrees. Um, I could talk about it forever personally, but yeah, it's, it's a super complex and impactful industry. Do you think part of that misunderstanding or lack of understanding is kind of born from the fact that the fashion industry for most consumers is just, as you've said, this item? And how it actually gets into the store has very little, I mean, the brand is involved in marketing it and designing it, yeah. but not involved unless they are truly end to end. And you've got maybe your Cuccinelli's and you've got Ralph Lauren trying to do that in certain spheres, but most brands, right? Yeah. Nothing to do with raw material production, very little to do with the actual production of the garment, which yeah. as you've said, as you rightly said, impacts humans. You know, and and when we talk about what what a living wage is, you'd be shocked. You know what that living yeah. wage is, and they're still not yeah. making it. Um, and then, really, even on the retail end, although you and many new brands have circumvented that with a direct to consumer model, but the traditional model of wholesale accounts, where the brands didn't even sell it, so they were kind of in this middle position. But they, in the minds of the consumers, did it all. And yeah. do you? Do you think that's part of the problem? And do you think that the newer consumers, millennials, et cetera, have a better understanding than, than we did in the past? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I do think that that's a huge part of the problem. I mean, there are just myriad intermediaries uh, in the process at almost every single step of the process as you just articulated. And yeah, I think um, you know the starting point uh, for a lot of brands, and I think this has improved, is that they actually don't really know <laughs> how their items are being made with a, a great degree of, um, of certainty. So I think that's a, that's a big problem. Um, I think it's exciting that we have many more tools now for traceability and transparency, and the availability of that tool set, I think, is going to make it 
um, harder and harder for brands not to choose to use them because it's available, whereas I think it hadn't been even going back, say, you know, five years. But this is another instance where I think the food industry, that kind of farm to table transparency movement and the technology that actually has come to life to support that has been super important. Um, I think that the more vertical structures that come about in this more, you know, direct to consumer landscape um, are important because that relationship between the brand and the consumer has to be a lot tighter. It doesn't necessarily solve for what's happening down the supply chain. So, you know, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. In terms of consumer interest, um, I think levels of curiosity vary <laughs> for sure. Uh, but I do think that the, uh, again, going back to the idea of just norm shifting, I think that expectations for what consumers uh, in, expect to find at the product level, at the brand level is certainly going up. Um, I don't know that that's changed materially. The one word that makes me super crazy is the word imported because I think it hides you know, so many different things. I haven't seen a real shift away from that, um, but I'm hopeful that between tools and, and, and norm changes that we're gonna get to a position that incentivizes companies to really you know, make some changes and understand what they're doing. Well, so let's talk about some of those tools. Um, your website provides a ton of disclosure. And I think, you know, we rarely think these days of the website as a tool, but if you flash back 15, 20 years, I mean, there was no disclosure other than a hang tag, right? And you can provide not yeah. only disclosure, but I think that subset of consumers who appreciate the story behind the garment and the makers behind the garment, it, yeah. can, be, it can be positive marketing when it's not greenwashed, right? When it's not- Totally. Yeah. Um, but you also use QR codes. Um, yeah. Explain that process and how it can allow the consumer to understand the provenance of, of their item. Sure. So yeah, our, our business is really underpinned by this digitized product ecosystem. So every garment has its own unique digital identity. And the way that manifests for the consumer today is through a QR code on the care content label. Now, the beautiful thing about this very challenging year we've all been through is that it's taught everyone how to use a QR code. <laughs> so, um, you know, you basically get to scan that and see the entire provenance of the garment, um, every step of its production process, in most cases, uh, back to the raw material level. So we think that that's really exciting. And that allows for consumers and our community to kind of dig in at whatever their level of curiosity is, um, or wherever their values most strongly align. Because I think all of us kind of gravitate a little bit more toward one issue or the other, have varying labor, layers of um, uh, of curiosity. So that's how that works. And it was a really natural outgrowth of the work that we were already doing to develop this really coherent data set behind our products. We also were able to use that same technology to create authentication for resale. So they kind of had these two really immediate use cases. Um, and that's been one of the thorniest issues in resale. So we're excited about this. We're already starting to see broader adoption. Um, and it's, it builds trust, right? Like irrespective of how much you engage with it, there's also just the confidence of knowing that it's there. Yeah. Well, and many have talked about the use of blockchain in fashion. Absolutely. Um, you know, which uh, is, is a great idea and great. Yeah. Um, let's, 
You mentioned that, that from your personal experience before founding the brand, uh, it was your challenge finding luxury items that you could determine uh, had an eco-friendly and labor human rights friendly um, you know, production ethos. That is one challenge. Another challenge and perhaps the bigger challenge is finding affordable apparel yeah that um, you know, has the same provenance. And so I, I guess you know, the hard question here is how would you respond to the claims that sustainability in apparel is really just for the luxury consumer and that you know, your common consumer who can't afford Brunello Cuccinelli, right? right. I mean, I'm one of those. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but, you know, yeah. How are they? Is it is is being green through your fashion choice is just something that uh, you know you have to have seven eight figures in your bank account to do? Yeah. No, I, I think that's uh, that it's a really really important criticism. I, I think I approach it from kind of two different ways. On the one hand, if you look at you know apparel in general, right, it's gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over the last 20, 30 years. It's sort of bucked the trend of inflation, and yet you're not necessarily spending less in aggregate because people are buying more, right? So I think that is one thing that needs to be addressed right off the bat. If we start to think about clothing as an asset, you start to build different business models around that asset. So you think about, you know, very few people buy a car by paying cash or putting it on their credit card. Certainly, I mean, maybe there's somebody that out there that does it with a house, I suppose there are. But nonetheless, you don't buy assets that way, right? So if you start to think about clothing as an asset, you start to build new business models that we're already seeing around that, whether that's rental, it's kind of this idea of sort of, you know, fractionalizing that or creating subscriptions around that. So I think that's one important thing because I think very few people would say, well, you know, you shouldn't buy that really good quality car. You should settle for something, you know, much lesser and, you know, less safe or, you know, less utility because, you know, you can afford it outright. So I think it's it's that business model piece that's really crucial. But then I think it also goes back to our economic system, which is that we don't have living wage work uh, as a norm in this industry. And then even outside of fashion, we've had this bifurcation of you know, inequality, which has meant that people can afford less and less. So I think we have to talk about it holistically as clothing is an asset. Overall, people, it hasn't really gotten cheaper because people are buying more. So how do we shift that? And then how do we actually support a middle class that can afford well-made products? Because I think it all, it's all interconnected. Yeah, no, it is a very, very macro question about- yeah about consumption, really. Yeah. And Zara, and I'm not gonna point the finger just at Zara or H&M, but fast fashion writ large has tapped into a, a, a human insecurity, I guess I'll say. Yeah. That is very, it's, it's a cord that's right there that they can start. Yeah. And, um, you know, the marketing is, is, is done well and people are convinced that they need the new. And that is not just in the fashion industry, but it's obviously pretty rife in the fashion industry where at its apex, you may have a brand that really has eight seasons, you know, yeah. and resort to, I mean. What is that? <laughs> what is that? Right. That's my third trip down to Florida. During yeah, exactly. So um, how do you fix that? You know, I think it's going to have to be part of the cultural culture change. You know, I think our our 
all of our systems are human. It's not as if somebody imposed this on us. You know, it's something that is part of our sort of collective will. And if we're serious about this planet, and if we're serious about the well-being of people on this planet, and I think there are all kinds of exciting signs that we are, we're going to have to deal with the inconsistencies in our behaviors and desires with that, you know, with that care. And so I think it's going to have to come along. And it, at some point, hopefully it'll be gross to wear something totally new every single day, unless you're saying, hey, I borrowed this from my friend or, hey, I, you know, rented this in a way that, you know, doesn't also require heaps of dry cleaning. I don't know what that is, but it's that normative change um, because really I think fashion is going to start to become much more than just our personal style, but our personal values. And, and those two things are going to be tied really closely together. Well, one thing to bring the law into it that, that does drive a capitalist system, of course, is you know, that mandate as a corporation that as a board of directors, you must maximize shareholder wealth, right? Yeah. So that choice leads to cramming down wages for your production partners. Right yep. and, and maximizing profits and maximizing sales um, doesn't care about humans doesn't care about the planet but it cares about the shareholders you know um, B Corp certification and and just to sort of monologue slightly you know a B corporation shifts that mission statement allowing a board of directors the owners of a B Corp to or or the stewards of a B Corp to follow a mission that is not maximization of shareholder wealth, but is maximization of really whatever their mission is. But most of the missions of B Corps, like Patagonia, like Eileen Fisher, um, deal with both of these issues, or at least address both of these issues, such that a board of directors making a choice, a conscious choice to produce somewhere where it's more expensive, and therefore profits will be less. It's not something that they can be sued about. Yeah. <laughs> Candidly, you know, outside of the B Corp, you could be. So your B Corp certification process, how, how has that been? Is it ongoing? Because I know it does take a while and there's a pending, you know, period. And what do you think about B Corps, you know, as somebody who's been involved in corporate finance, um, you know, uh, as, as a long-term solution? Yeah, I mean, I felt that it was incredibly important um, right off the bat, precisely because of my background, right? And the, and the need to really align incentives between investor and company off the bat in a way that is uh, grounded in law, <laughs> right? And to make sure that everyone is super clear uh, at the table from the outset. So I, I, have, I feel it's very, very important um, for, for that reason. Um, I also think it's very important for mission-based companies to make money because I think it is, uh, it's an important signaling mechanism that it's actually it's doable. Work. Yeah, it's got to work. It has to work, right? If you fail to make money, you kind of haven't really proven anything, right? So um, I think that that's really important. Um, we did complete the process last summer, um, and it was something that we spent a lot of energy on within the team because of its you know, critical importance to the way that we view things. Um, it was a lot of work. I won't lie. It was definitely a lot of work, but it also um, it helped raise even for us a lot of important questions, um, even in terms of internal structure, right? Because what you want to do is it's not just about 
the things that you talk about externally, which are often, you know, product driven or story driven supply chain, et cetera. But it's also about, you know, your healthcare policies and your handbook and your um, diversity and inclusion and hiring. So I love it because it's also a way to just create coherence as a company, uh, which I think is, you know, if you look at the last year, you know, even from a risk management standpoint, like that's where a lot of companies kind of fell, fell a bit flat, where the external messaging versus the internal culture really were at odds. So you haven't really seen that with B Corps as much, which is, which is quite interesting. And hard I think protective of shareholders, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to do it with all that disclosure. It's it's kind of like living, you know, in an office full of mirrors because you're constantly looking at business practices, everything from, as you say, you know, your, your supply chain to what you do with waste paper. If you even totally. print it out, you know, and um, yeah. I think it's great to, to practice what you preach. Uh, so Morgan Stanley, you spent 15 years at Morgan Stanley working your way up the ranks to become an MD, which is no small accomplishment. Um, we're gonna pivot a little bit. I mean, what were some of your obstacles uh, <laughs> as a woman uh, in yeah. a, a hyper, I'll say, masculine environment traditionally yeah. um, in, in accomplishing that feat? Oh gosh, I mean, I have to say, you know, kudos to the company because it's really a great place to work, um, and they've been, you know, super supportive of even my personal idiosyncrasies, you know, along along the way because I'm a fairly independent and stubborn human. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, in particular, you know, I was in, I was in trading, right? So to be a woman in that environment and to be a woman as a trader uh, was particularly interesting. Um, and, you know, you were faced with, I would say industry-wide kind of just a credibility gap, right? Because at the time when I came in, it was this idea of like, oh, you know, is she here because she's a woman and we know we need more women and like that whole thing. So, you know, you just had to, you know, work kind of twice as hard, <laughs> honestly. Um, and partially that's, you know, personal insecurity and wanting to, you know, prove it to yourself and prove it to others. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely worked my butt off. Um, but I am pretty stubborn. And so that kind of gets you a long way, <laughs> kind of gets you a long way. And over the years, I would say, you know, that industry has changed dramatically for the positive. Um, and it's been interesting actually moving out of traditional finance and a little bit more into the world of venture where it's like, wow, there's a space that really has some work to do. Um, but no, I mean, ultimately it was just, uh, it was, you know, it was hard work and it was, it was credibility building um, just day by day by day by day. Let's, um, let's talk about personal presentation during that time. Uh, yeah. You know, also a challenge for men, a significant challenge for women. And, you know, if you can just comment on how, particularly coming up the ranks, you chose to dress and present yourself and, and the challenges because, you know, the laws of style, the book that I wrote is really not about, you know, it is about personal presentation, but as a man, the only perspective I can write from. Um, and I think those challenges are much, much higher for women in conservative uh, jobs because there's this difficult line between being, looking really professional, looking really good, and what a lot of brands want women to look like really sexy, right? And that is not necessarily professional, but that line is a huge swath of gray to me. And how did you navigate it? 
Um, I learned to really enjoy walking right in the middle, uh, which was kind of an interesting dance and, and one that I got um, more comfortable with over time. You know, when I was in my 20s, I just found it agonizing. And, and I think back to some of like the terrible sweater sets and chinos I wore, it was just bad. And then at some point I got, but I mean, I'm a girl from Iowa, right? So you have to remember where that starting point is. I really was kind of a fish out of water. And then, you know, throughout my 20s, um, I got more and more sort of comfortable. And I started to also recognize that you kind of need to dress for the job you want to have. And so an ability to actually really know who you are, understand the environment in which you're operating and really like dress for that job was, um, was actually pretty powerful in the end because you could really come into that room and present in a way that was confidence inspiring. Yeah. Well, and for many, very different. And, and I do think women have better fashion style choices than men. I mean, yeah, at least over the last hundred years. Um, totally. But I can imagine how fraught with, you know, indecision, some of, you know, I mean, if you wear a smock, you're safe, but. You know, no, right. Well, the interesting thing about it actually was also that, you know, men are kind of allowed to wear the same thing every single day but sort of women are expected to look a little different every day, which I find sort of infuriating because it introduces this whole need to think about it every day. So I, I find the, the idea of an elegant uniform pretty compelling. Well, what do you think uh, work from home, which, which may be dissipating, I mean, in some ways, hopefully will dissipate in some quarters, but um, you know, personally, all the lawyers that I've been working with, whether big law or, or small, uh, have been working from home for the year. And how do you think that that has impacted professional dress? Oh, it's, it's so interesting. And you know, I catch up with my former colleagues on occasion over Zoom as well. And I see a very wide variety of, of fashion choices <laughs> today, you know, wider one than I saw before. I think the jury's out. I think that the, um, you know, we're all going to have a lot more flexibility, which is great. I think that um, we've all been able to show more facets of our personalities, which I think also probably will be reflected in a little bit more latitude in how people present mm -hmm. as they come back to offices, which I think is exciting. Um, comfort, I think we've all appreciated. There, there are certain things I will never wear again, <laughs> unless I absolutely have to. So I think we'll see. I think it's going to become a little bit more comfortable. I think that there will be more appreciation of individuality at the margin. Um, but in terms of what we're functionally going to need, depending on how we communicate with one another, I think, I think we'll have to see. I think the next two years is going to be as interesting as the last has been in how we actually adapt to this newfound kind of information that we have. Yeah. Well, so another tomorrow's design aesthetic. I mean, I look at it and it looks pretty timeless. There are, there are some coded power signals in some of the tailored clothing, but, but don't let me throw adjectives out. Can you tell <laughs> us, you know, uh, what, what is the design aesthetic and, and do you view it as something that you want consistent or do you want it to ebb and flow with fashions? Oh, such a good question. I mean, really, I, it does come back to sort of my personal aesthetic, but also Jane's. And, and it's sort of this marrying of like the masculine and feminine and, and that sort of tension and um, 
between the two, right? So it's like that structure, but it's very functional, but it's, there's some femininity and there's movement in all of it. And so I think that is something that will always be consistent across the collection. And we do operate with a big share of the business as a permanent collection. Um, but then, you know, fashion is inherently expressive. And so I think that it will continue to evolve and we want it to be a source of um, expression as opposed to constraint. So, you know, we'll see, but that is the point of commonality. And what we love about it is that people can integrate it into their worlds in their own way. I mean, it's kind of funny. If you look at our creative director, Jane Chung and myself, it's funny that we wear almost exactly the same things, but in completely different ways. So we love that idea that it can bring utility to a wide range of women's lives. And that's what we see with our customers, which is really exciting. How, how is the interplay with you as CEO and, and Jane as creative director? That's, that's one that um, you know, can work well, can work not so well. I think of you know, the classic Gucci combination of Domenico de Sole and Tom Ford was you know, what really skyrocketed them. Um, but you know, how is that dynamic? And, and you know, as a stylish person yourself, how much do you wade into decisions about design? Yeah, oh, good question. So, you know, Jane and I, I think the fact that we come from this really similar aesthetic grounding helps tremendously because it was clear to me at the outset, I'm, I'm much more curator than designer in all facets of my life. My mother was an artist and I knew early on I was not an artist. So, um, you know, I think that I, I like to give her a lot of freedom with the understanding that everything has to come through the lens of what's gonna add value for the customer, right? So that really customer centric approach uh, that doesn't constrain creativity, but that really starts to, starts to channel it. And then I get involved at the end, right? So really the, the biggest interplay is uh, design, product design, sustainability, because you know everything can be beautiful on a sketch. We have to be able to make it according to our values. And then I'm kind of the editor, um, you could say. But but really, you know, we try and ultimately operate on kind of 80% permanent collection, 20% new to kind of maintain that business model. Right now, because we're doing category expansion, it's a little bit closer to 50-50, but that's the kind of design philosophy that we generally have. And, and how are you with your own inventory management? Do you try to keep that lean? Um, you know, we, we talk about, it. what's great about having, you know, sort of that core line is you can, you can keep it as long as, you know, it's eventually going to sell. But totally. talk about things that are more seasonal and, and perhaps temporary. Yeah. And if you're left with 30 units, you have a waste issue, right? Um, so, yeah. so how are you managing that? How are you handling that? So yes, the, the business mix is kind of intended to address precisely that, right? Where um, some element of newness is, um, I think, relevant and allows us also to experiment, but we manage that very tightly in terms of units. So there's sort of an organic scarcity to that. And then if it's something, oh my gosh, that was so successful and we think that's gonna add a lot of value, then it can move into you know, the permanent collection. But that does tend to be the way that we manage it. But overall, I think this does get to the crux of the issue for the industry, which is overproduction and inventory management. So one of the things that I spend a ton of time on now is thinking about how we move certain segments of the business into just-in-time manufacturing, because we have got to be, as a company, as an industry, much more demand responsive. It is one of the most speculative industries I've ever seen coming out of finance. It's bonkers. So. 
that, that's my vantage point. Well, so launching pre-COVID, right? You had a business plan, you were <laughs> undertaking the B Corp certification, and then this happened, right? I mean, you, yeah. you had the benefit, I guess, of being direct to consumer, which yeah. a lot of the brands that, uh, that I represent, you know, had the disadvantage of having a lot of inventory either, you know, in production or shipped to retailers, but not paid for. And, yeah. you know, that was a, that was a huge yank. Um, but how has it been? And I know that's a huge question, but, you know, in terms of the business and then also, you know, your own diligence on your supply chain, not yeah. really easy when you can't travel. Definitely. I mean, I would say that um, I, there's no way we could have done last year what we did in the two years prior. So I'm so grateful in many ways for the timing. Um, and those supply chain relationships and the fact that we had done all that diligence actually made it so much easier to maneuver. You know, we know the farmers, literally, you know, you know, the farmers, you know, the, you know, the mills, you know, very, very deeply, you know, exactly who's producing everything. And you can really troubleshoot together because there was a lot of troubleshooting for sure. Um, yeah. So that was, uh, that was hugely helpful. And I think that when people think about sustainability, um, it's one of the hidden benefits is you actually really know who your partners are and you can risk manage your supply chain in a really aggressive way together as partners. So that was really helpful. Uh, doesn't mean we didn't have issues, doesn't mean we didn't have delays, but that was a huge benefit um, for us. We also candidly got really lucky with some significant shipments in Feb at the end of February, right before things shut down. So, you know, luck also plays a role. Um, but there was that, um, and Matches was an incredible partner for us. So we're mostly direct to consumer, but we do we did launch with them as our one strategic partner, and and doing that in an exclusive way was was really helpful um, as well. And then, frankly, you know, if you're going to be in a crisis, it's good to be nimble. So it was good to be young. It was good to be uh, independent, and so we were able to maneuver. The biggest challenges um, that we had that were not sort of surmountable through these relationships were, you know, our customer needed fundamentally different things, <laughs> you know, so how do you shift that emphasis and be customer responsive without losing your brand identity? Yeah. Uh, because we did not intend to become a sweatpants brand overnight. You know, and especially when you're young, you've got to be really clear about that coherence and people knowing who you are. So I thought Jane navigated that masterfully. And, and we made some aggressive decisions around, you know, not producing what we had intended to originally for fall early on. And we knew it was going to hit, you know, it was going to hit revenue potential. You know, if you're making less stuff, you're going to sell less stuff. But it felt like kind of going back to my finance days, you know, you got to be prepared to make the big call. So you can kind of like survive to thrive, right? That was like sort of the the yeah. way that we thought about it. So it's been a, it's been an interesting year to say the least. Well, you know, on the financing side, with the primacy of direct to consumer, yeah, uh, and the the fact that maybe you roll back before there was such primacy on it, and it was a cheap way for a young brand to get into the space and, um, you know, get some loyal customers and yeah. enjoy that full margin. I mean, that's the big, yeah. you know, you're not yeah. selling wholesale, you're enjoying that full margin. Today, it is 
real expensive, right? To get eyeballs is the most expensive thing. And there's no guarantee those are converge, you know, conversions. Totally. Uh, so, I mean, do you think from a financing perspective that the barriers to entry for young companies that want to be to are, are, are really higher than ever as compared to 90s aughts when you had these massive wholesale accounts that if they liked you, they would say, hey, here's an order for $500,000, which financed production. And all of a sudden you were in stores all around the world, potentially, and you yeah. were a designer. Um, yeah. You know, what are, what are your thoughts on that shift? Yeah, I, I actually think that's a very significant um, challenge, you know, and, and one that really is a potential serious impediment to creativity in the industry. Um, but at the same time, um, I think that that model also did lend itself to some of the issues that we talked about previously, right? Um, so it's a little bit interconnected. And so the way I see it is it definitely doesn't make sense for all of these really design-led companies to be reinventing the wheel and building the same architecture over and over and over again. So I think that there's a significant opportunity to actually build like brand platforms with kind of centralized services, if you think about that, and really think about, and potentially centralized funding that creatives can bolt onto, right? Because maybe one marketing function could actually serve multiple brands, and maybe they're selling to both wholesale and direct-to-consumer. Because I think the future of retail is really everywhere. It's not purely direct-to-consumer. It's clearly not purely wholesale. But how do we create this new ecosystem that can continue to support creativity and these incredible designers solving for some of the challenges that we talked about before um, and definitely not leading to this kind of also misallocation of capital like not all these we don't need 100 small brands that each have their own kind of marketing expert and cfo and technologists it's kind of crazy so i think that we're in the early stages of figuring out how to do that in an efficient way yeah that'll be interesting to see that that calling and i think it will happen um Let's 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 shift to education. You enrolled in a master's course uh, in sustainability management from Columbia University's Earth Institute. What are you learning there? Um, is it fashion specific? And how much of sustainability really should bleed into what is the normal course curriculum for you know, Parsons, FIT students, design students, as well as perhaps business students. Yeah. So I enrolled um, at Columbia because they actually have the biggest group of climate scientists and, and sustainability practitioners basically anywhere. It's like over 500 across the various departments, which I thought was really cool. And the program itself offers just exceptional flexibility to kind of dig into uh, what you really want to focus on. So you could really focus on learning about water. You could focus upon on learning about um, energy efficiency in the built environment, you know, all these different things. And so as a, just a naturally curious person, you know, you can kind of get into all kinds of different stuff. Um, interestingly, one of the, fir the first course I took was actually in environmental law. And I found that um, really eye-opening, uh, not because it was totally foreign to me, but it was actually a reminder of what's possible. And if, you know, I, I was born in you know, early 80s, and, and so I didn't kind of live through the period of the, the late 60s into the 70s 
that had all of this kind of seminal legislation passed. And so for me, it was just a really exciting reminder of actually what we can do collectively through regulation mm -hmm. and the importance of regulation. Because I think that the moment that we're in now is really demonstrating, you know, great that we're doing ESG finance, great that we have more corporate stewardship, but really what we need are common policies that are gonna change the landscape for all of the various players. So um, I'm really enjoying it. I think it's an awesome program. And I do think it needs to be a part of education holistically in business. And uh, certainly in all of these different apparel degrees and different places do it to you know differing degrees, but you should understand the materials you're designing with, right? <laughs> and the implications of the business process. And Absolutely. I think it will make for better business people and better designers um, to really have a, a deeper understanding of what we're all doing. So I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah, well, regulation is is an important point. And, um, you know, the, the Biden administration, you know, re-signing to the Paris Accord is, is a great step. Um, one of the challenges in the fashion industry is how global it is, right? Yeah. So it's one thing for the Biden administration to commit the United States to, to practicing business in a certain way. There are just so many nations. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so that's one challenge. I mean, how this is an unanswerable question. I realize you're not running for any particular office, but how would you address that? You know, when you hear from, say, a Bangladesh that, no, we are not going to mandate a minimum wage because we don't want apparel production moving out of our country. It's our lifeblood. And even though people are surviving on $2 a day, that's our business and not yours. Get out of our backyard. Right. We've started to see some of this come out of Europe, which is basically this idea of making companies accountable for their supply chains and their suppliers, you know, even if they're not owned, irrespective of where they operate anywhere in the world. And I think that that is the way to do it. We saw that come up in Switzerland. It's certainly been talked about at the EU level. I think we're not close <laughs> to getting there. And I, I would not expect the United States to be a leader in that. Um, but ultimately, I think that that's kind of the only way you can do it, because otherwise you're always going to have that arbitrage that you're articulating, um, understandably so. And so I, I think that, that that accountability and reporting at the corporate level is also going to be increasingly important because you do now have investors that want to hold these corporations to account as well. And I think that, you know, what Unilever is a good example, you know, they basically said that they're planning to make it make sure that all of their suppliers are paying their workers a living wage. Well, if Unilever can do it, yeah, most companies can do it. No, that's a good point. And, you know, it's been good to see some of the disclosure move towards just very objective scores, right? Yeah, exactly. Most consumers, you know, the public isn't going to deep dive into, look, they don't look at SEC filings, let alone, you know, <laughs> the, the sustainability <laughs> section of the SEC. Totally. So, um, you know, I think that that's very important. And, and look, those numbers are never going to be perfect. It's always yeah. going to be some opportunity to game them. But by and large, I think they're a very, very good thing. Um, so let us move to just your, um, you know, maybe some of the brands that you respond to, whether that's from a design perspective, um, but that have also integrated some of the ethos that, that you share and that perhaps like an Eileen Fisher or a Stella McCartney shares. And I don't want to name two brands that you might name, but you know, are, are, who, who are your you know, favorite brands from that perspective and, and how do you think they're doing? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the ones um, for which I have a ton of respect is Mara Hoffman. And, you know, I think that, you know, Mara's business didn't start out that way, but she kind of had that watershed moment of understanding. And she really, you know, was kind of the, I have, I feel sort of similar in that sometimes there's just information you can't unknow. And she chose to actually do something about it and really completely retool her business and her supply chain. Um, and has taken, you know, I think a very, elegant and kind of fun way of educating her community. So I have a lot of respect for um, for what Mara and, and the team do. Um, I love Patagonia. I mean, it's it's obviously not, you know, fashion with a capital F, but, um, you know, I think that their integration of activism and policy alongside just good product that people want is something that, um, you know, I certainly really appreciate. Love what Eileen Fisher is doing um, as well. And then, yeah, there are a plethora of brands that I really, um, you know, love the design of. Some of them are more challenging to purchase in my more educated <laughs> mindset. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, back in the day, I mean, I kind of consider like Dior just the exquisite uh, end of the tailoring spectrum. So, you know, huge amount of respect there. Love Dries for just the, you know, exquisite fabrics and, you know, creativity. So all that good stuff. But um, you know, really, if I had to think about who's demonstrated that it's all possible, I love what Mara's done. That's great. And definitely a challenge for a brand that didn't immediately align with sustainability. Uh, yeah. Because let's face it, you really see all brands now trying desperately to, to turn the ship. Yeah. The bigger the ship, the harder it is, right? Um, so you know, that, that, that's a great example of somebody who was able to do it. How, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, sort of the investment, which I really, that, that, that really triggered something in me, you know, um, and it, do, it, it also plays into this sort of secondary economy of, of gently loved, we'll say, yeah. um, items. I know you have or are working on a buyback program. Yeah. Um, I think those those have worked very well for some of the European houses where truly you are investing. If you own a Birkin bag, you know, that is that is going to your daughter or or your son. I don't mean to, you know, I mean yeah. it's a beautiful piece that can be invested yeah. in and handed down. Or to a lot of these new consumers, invested in and perhaps resold and resold yeah. at a profit. Um, mm -hmm. so what are your thoughts there and that sort of gently used economy? And then I'll ask the challenging question, you know, how do you take products that are maybe have less um, intrinsic value and, and still put them in that type of uh, economy? Yeah. So, you know, I believe strongly that luxury bands are perfectly positioned to own their own resale channels, you know, and again, I'll kind of use, you know, the car analogy where it's like, you know, you look at BMW, certified pre-owned cars, you're going to feel very differently buying that car from bmw versus off a used car lot so why not just own that yourself as a brand it opens up a far bigger range of potential customers and it gives them the same brand experience so i just think that's a slam dunk for anyone making and super high quality to the product. longevity that the, the, totally. the fact that it's constructed well you know it, it speaks to absolutely that, really standing behind it and it really it's a, it's a quality signal from the from the get-go so i think that that makes you know makes a ton of sense um so we decided to embed that um in our business model from the outset now as a new brand you have to sell product before you can resell product and ideally you don't want to be getting things back right away 
But we did that and we also incorporated a size exchange program as kind of a, a lead in to that. So you buy a blazer, your body changes. Uh, if you want a different size within a first year, you can change it in a complimentary basis. So it creates some of that circularity to make sure that you have utility. Um, I think that for the items that are make less sense in a resale context, like particularly things that are close to the body, like a t-shirt, things of that nature, you know, you've got to start to find other end of life solutions for that. So we're actually in you know, early conversations with a potential partner that uses a lot of recycled cotton, for example, of, you know, can we team up? And that's where I think that collaboration is required. And also the very unsexy work of setting up municipal recycling systems, because that infrastructure just kind of doesn't really exist. So for your average consumer, they want to recycle responsibly, you know, whether it's this shirt or something else, not there's not a great way to to do that it's, right now. it's hard you know i'm on the board of goodwill which i think a lot of people consider along with salvation army and others right. as, as kind of that resource god i don't know what to do with it let me take it to goodwill um and they do provide that service i mean they really goodwill when it when something has been on the floor for longer than i think six weeks it it goes in for recycling so it has an opportunity to be a gently loved second purchase before it gets recycled, if it can be recycled. But I think you're absolutely right. It's it's a rich area for really the government to step in and 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 yeah. you know create those those um, those centers. For you, what is the difference between fashion and style? So you know, I I, I suppose to me, I feel like fashion feels more external uh in, in a sense and style i feel comes from within you know you know if you feel stylish walking out the door and it's based on kind of your personal value systems as well as kind of the culture uh, that you surround yourself with so i kind of think about it as that sort of external internal perspective okay and and who are some of your style icons whether men or women oh gosh you know i I struggle so much with this and people always, always, always ask me, I think in, in many respects, it was kind of my mother. Um, and she drove me bananas at the time. You know, she made, she was just, you know, small town at town America. She was an artist, as I mentioned, and she just wore whatever the heck she wanted. And, and it was just horrifying, but it was her, you know, and it just it came through all of her herself. And um, and so she was, you know, really, I think it was her. And I remember actually um, after she passed away, putting on uh, she had this old boiled wool suit and it was the first suit I'd ever tried on. And it was so empowering. It was just this kind of aha moment. So I'm going to give it to my mom. That's a good answer. Um, well, Vanessa, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts. Um, any any last words or um, you know follows for yourself or the brand that you want to shout out to our listeners? Well, please come find us at anothertomorrow.co. You can also find us on Instagram at anothertomorrow. And we're on all the other socials as well. But uh, we're really excited to be building our community. And I've been thrilled to be here and speak with you. Great. Thanks for that. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website, 
at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.